Hello there. Science fiction is an existential metaphor. It allows us to tell stories about the human condition. Isaac Asimov once said, individual science fiction stories may seem as trivial as ever to the blinder critics and philosophers of today. But the core of science fiction, its essence has become crucial to our salvation. Tell me how many lights you see. Ah! Ah! Four lights! So this is how liberty dies. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Herzog. Good evening, I'm Miles P. McLaughlin. I'm Chrissy Ravensberger. And I'm Dave Sellers. Ooh, and Dave Sellers is sounding beautiful in that new mic of his. It should. It should, it should. That deep, sexy voice of yours, awesome. Well, let's not get too crazy here. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna, I mean, I'm gonna be shipping the bromance. No, <laughs> whoa, I'm giving Chrissy a headache. Uh, she has a headache already, but yeah. And we also have joining us tonight a very special returning guest. It might be, uh, might have been on the diner, maybe one of our most welcomed guests back. I don't know. It's between him and Mike Schilling, uh, but Dayton Ward, welcome back to the Sci-Fi Diner podcast. Well, thanks for having me back. It's been a while. It has. Yeah, I think when we had it, we had it on, uh, he was on one of the, Miles, didn't he help review one of the Star Trek movies? Oh, yeah, he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, Star Trek 3, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, there we go. See, better memory than I have. Man, that's, I don't even remember that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do a lot of podcasts, Dayton. A lot of podcasts, and he does a lot with Star Trek. People so. ask me why I don't have my own podcasts because I just bum off everybody else. <laughs> right, right, right. Just mooch off everyone else's. Why do your own when you can be on everyone else's, right? I think I'm like one of four people on the planet without their own podcast. <laughs> uh, something like that. Something like that. But you're heard on, on, on everybody else's, though. Yeah, yeah. Heard on XYZ Podcast. So, Dayton, uh, it's great to have you back. Uh, since it's been a little bit, tell us a little bit. Before we get into the bread and butter of the show, which is, of course, to talk about the original Planet of the Apes, which we're going to get into, tell us a little bit about what's been going on in Dayton's world. Uh, what are you up to? What's keeping you busy these days? Well, I'm still still slinging words, pushing words for the man. Uh, I write freelance fiction and nonfiction. A lot of that takes place in the Star Trek universe. And uh, in recent years, that has morphed into my being something of a consultant for Paramount. Uh, on the consumer product side. So anything that is a story or a narrative, so if it's a comic or a book or a game or some other kind of interactive experience with some narrative attached to it, I sometimes or almost all the time get pulled in to consult on that. Uh, Development, making sure that the tone and the brand and all that is on point, Uh, continuity notes, all that kind of stuff. And then... I also read all the scripts for all the new shows that are coming down the pike. I comment on the continuity and the lore. And, uh, they may or may not take my notes. Depends on, you know, the mood of the day. Um, but yeah, and also stay informed of what's coming so that we can help develop product to tie into that stuff. So like, you know, if there's a new TV show coming, we might be able to get a book out or a comic or 
uh, something like that. So, and that goes with, uh, obviously, uh, does that, you mentioned a lot of other things, but the television shows as well, is that kind of, are you involved with that as well? I'm not involved in the making of the show. I mean, they, I'm on a distribution list and they have me and a couple other people read the scripts for continuity and accuracy and making sure the lore matches up. And um, if we can so if suggest, it it's not your fault. I'm not the guy on the credits, so it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> and so you told them. Yeah. So I do that. But I mean, a lot of times it's fun. It's like the lower decks, for example, the lower decks gang, they are hilarious and fun to work with. And they'll, they'll reach out to us too. And Hey, we got a question about X, Y, Z. Can you help us figure out a way around that? Or, you know, give me, give me some examples of this alien or that kind of, of that technology or whatever. So we help them out and make, make it, try to make it fun, try to make it accurate, try to make it more, you know, good Star Trek. Well, they do a good job. I love that show. I, I don't miss a week. It, it, it cracks me up every time. So, but mostly when I read the scripts, it's with an eye toward, hey, there's a dangling plot thread that we could turn that into a comic miniseries, or um, there's a book idea there with that character, that kind of thing. Nice. Very good. Have you had anything to do with the, uh, the new comic coming out with uh, Cisco's return? In the sense that I... Um, in the re- the review and approval chains for the scripts and the outlines and the art and everything, I I'm, we have a weekly meeting with IDW where we go over everything that's on their, their docket for that week and you know we we look at the pages we look at the, we read the scripts and mark them up make sure the lore is being observed um, or try to anyway you know um, not everything yeah, every you miss something every once in a while. Um, there's a lot of hands in the pot, but I'm basically on the approval side. So I work, I work for the people who actually review and approve all this. They kind of pull me in as an extra set of hands and eyes. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. That one's got me curious. (laughs) Well, you know, there has to be, I mean, what a wait when you're creating this content, there's so much Star Trek out there that, that it's, it's, it has to be difficult to be aware of every single nuance and so if you can get a, as many uh, people who are familiar with the the franchise and that know the stories and are you know nerds about it the more people you can get in the more hopefully accurate you can be that's the goal you know like i said i think i like to think we hit way more than we miss but every once in a while because we're humans you know something gets something gets lost in the shuffle or misinterpreted or whatever and you know it's but that's the way it's been since the beginning so right. We just try, you know, we try our best and everybody's a fan. That's the thing is the guys who are writing that Star Trek comic that, was, that you just talked about, they are such huge fans of the property. And this is like their dream gig. They've been wanting to write a story like this for years. So it's like getting called up from the minors, you know, and you're your first, your, your first at bat is in game one of the World Series. You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, right. They're just, they're, they're having a ball with it. And it comes through on the page when we read the scripts. I'm like, oh my God, I can't wait to see the art for this. Or like that. <laughs> you know? That's awesome. It's terrific. That's awesome. So uh, you, you say you're also slinging words. Do you have any words that you've slung that are coming out uh, soon that we can be looking I forward to? Do my, my writing partner, Kevin Dillmore and I, we've got some original fiction coming out in a couple of anthologies next year. Uh, and I've also got another Star Trek Discovery novel that'll be out. Uh, I think it's May. They pushed it to May, so it's first or first part of May, I think. Is uh, it'll be a Discovery book set in the 32nd century. You know, they've gone to the future now. Right. Cool. So, and uh, so it's the first Discovery book I've written in 
about four years. It'll be four years at that point, four or five years. Wow. Uh, I wrote one of the first ones that came out. Even you know, I was writing it even before the show premiered. Um, I remember it's a little that. different. It's a little different because now I've actually had a chance to see the show. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Right. So. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, well, we got other stuff that I can't talk about yet. Uh, announced, yeah, yeah, tell us yeah, you have to tell yeah, us. Yeah. Got it. Um, pesky NDA. Just good to know that there's Dayton. There's good, good to know there's more uh, more books that you and uh, Kevin are penning that I can look forward to reading in not not too distant future. Hopefully, not too distant future. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Miles, why don't you lead us into uh, what we're talking about tonight, and uh, and then let's uh, get Dayton to weigh in. I mean, that's why we have him on, and we want to hear what he has to say about this show that he has uh, grown up with. Go ahead. So, um, I thought it'd be great. We, we haven't uh, reviewed any of the uh, Planet of the Apes movies, and we want to get back to look at some of the classic sci-fi and um, I'm a huge fan of this. Um, I was reading a, a novel, not that long, a, a Planet of the Apes novel, Death of the Planet of the Apes, uh, written by uh, uh, Andrea Gasca, and got me into going on YouTube, looking at YouTube clips of Planet of the Apes, and then finally watching. I thought we need to we need to talk about it, and more important, um, we have you know we need to have a super fan of this franchise, Dayton Ward, review it with us and. Um, I, I think there's a lot of great stuff in, in, in this movie. I think it it has a lot of a lot of interesting ideas to to uh, uh, explore. And um, so, yeah, so we're 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 reviewing the original Planet of the Apes movie that came out in '68. Um, so just a brief, very brief synopsis. It's an it, it's a tale of an astronaut crew. That crash lands on a planet in the distant future where intelligent talking apes are the dominant species and humans are the oppressed and the enslaved. Uh, it came from the, uh, the original novel uh, written by uh, Pierre Boulet. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. The um, uh, screenplay was written by a uh, name, maybe some of you are familiar, uh, Rod, Rod Serling. Uh, he, he was the, uh, the force behind the uh, Twilight series and, and Michael Wilson. And uh, the film was uh, costed about five point eight million. I was trying to find an exact budget, so but I think in in my research it, it it did meet budget, but it did tax it did stretch the budget and and tax re- Hollywood's resources in making this movie, and it, it, it uh, grossed uh, worldwide around the time around uh, thirty two thirty two six hundred million dollars. So you're saying it made money for them. It, yes, it, it definitely made money, and that's why they kept uh, coming back saying, "Hey, we want another one." Right, right. So, Dayton, you were uh, did you were did you see this movie in theaters? Or are you not quite that old? I'm not that old, guys. Well, so I, I, I'm not. I don't know. Like you said, you grew up watching it, so I wasn't I sure. Was, I was one when it came out. <laughs> okay, so I saw them. I remember watching. The, the original one on TV because CBS ran it on TV as a like whatever night of the week it was. There's something night movie, right? Friday night movie or something like that. And so they ran the original and then the two sequels like in the summer of 1973 or something like that. So I would have been six or seven. 
And that's what the ratings for them were so strong. That's what got the TV series made the following year. So uh, I never saw them in theaters until like they would do retrospect, you know, retro repertory screenings at movie theaters, like Alamo draft house would do it. And I'd go see them then. So I've, I've seen them all on the big screen, but in that way, not originally, I'm not quite that old. Right, right, right. Um, Dayton, I remember, I mean, lots of Plat the Apes merch back in the mm-hmm. early 70s. Um, I, 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 I had a Plat of the Apes bow and arrow set or something. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. The, um, you know, the, the guy that the guy that created or produced the movie, Arthur Jacobs, he he had the idea of merchandising like well before George Lucas came along. I mean, before Star Wars came along, the Planet of the Apes merch was everywhere. Those friggin' monkeys were on <laughs> toys and games and models and trash cans and Halloween costumes. And I mean, you name it, trading cards, comic books, the whole smash. Um, it was just insane. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I come home from school and I, the, the one, it used to be the, the one exception to do your homework before you can watch TV rule that my mom had was I could catch the hour rerun of Star Trek, you know, the original Star Trek. And then the local TV stations back in those days would sometimes do what they called Ape Week, where they would run a different Planet of the Apes movie every day, Monday through Friday, for a week. And so this was after the TV show. And then they started combining episodes from the TV show to make their own little cheesy two TV movies. So you'd get 10 hours of ape movies every week, about once a year. So I remember watching those and trying to catch them whenever they came on, because, you know, this is the days before streaming and home video and recording and all that stuff you had to catch it when you could right 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 so it was a lot of fun um and i had the comic books and i had the i think i had a few of the novels because that's pretty much all they had if you wanted to revisit those stories back then right right what is it that drew you to planet of the apes it was so fast as a boy especially what fascinated you with this story with the with these, yeah, I guess with the story. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I was what, like I said, I was six or seven. So it obviously wasn't the, uh, the, the nuanced social commentary that was baked into every script. I wasn't there yet. That came later. Um, right. At the time, it was science fiction. I was a science fiction fan. I grew up on stuff like the original Star Trek and Lost in Space and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and the cheesy 50s and 60s movies that they'd run on Saturday afternoons. So this fit right in. You know, I was a big, I was a big science fiction guy. So this fit right in. It was an action adventure thing. It was talking apes, you know, guns and horsebacks and all that stuff. And um, so I watched it that way. And then as I got older, I started to see, oh, there's a lot of, there's a lot going on in this script. There's a lot of subtle commentary going on in this script. A lot of unsubtle commentary going on in the script. Um, it's just, it's something that kind of grows with you a little bit. You, you find something new if you're paying attention, you know, on subsequent viewings. Right, right. It's almost like uh, it's almost like when you like read a novel, you know, and you're young, and you come back to like, oh, this is a whole different novel because you read it with a different set of eyes or a different place in life. Yeah. So I mean, when I was a little kid, you know, I'd like I didn't catch the races, you know, the allegory, the racism allegory in, in the different movies. Right. Um, that came later. Uh, and now, of course, you can read entire books and dissertations about that that people write. Um, but this was, you know, no internet. Before the internet, before magazines that did all this kind of stuff, it was just a, it was just a goofy science fiction thing that we liked when we were kids. Right, right. And the toys, I'm sure the toys probably were the big driver. It's like, oh, cool toys, you know. Right. <laughs> Didn't you what know, a smart movie. What, what's that? 
did me did the same company that that manufactured Star Trek toys back then was it? Uh, did, they, did they also do Planet of the Apes? Mego. Yeah. I'm for some Migo reason thinking them. the actual figure. Mego had everything back in the mid seventies. It was they had all the major licensing. Like they, the only one they didn't ever got was Star Wars. Mm-hmm. That went to that went to Kenner. But I mean, Mego had both Marvel and DC comics. They had Planet of the Apes. They had Star Trek. They had all kinds of other stuff that I can't even remember anymore. Universal Monsters, I think they had all kinds of crazy stuff. And you know, you know, they're back, right? They came back a couple of years ago. They, they, mm-hmm. the, the, the company re- reincorporated or reconstituted or whatever, and they've been pumping out Mego figures now for like the last three years, four years. Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah, old ones and new ones. They're redoing all the old ones, but they're also coming up with new ones. Awesome, awesome. Very good, very good. So, uh, Miles, where do you want to take this uh, this discussion going on? How, how about just talk about some of the characters in, in this uh I mean, I'll, I'll start with the you know the the, the protagonist uh, played by Charlton Heston. Um, what 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 inter- I mean, I find interesting is that he he's an unusual protagonist uh, in that he he's world weary, he's he's cynical and jaded. He has seen a lot of um, you know we we, we can assume he's a veteran. You know, he's a veteran of, of the of the wars. And so uh, he doesn't have the best uh, view of humanity, and, and in this movie, he sort of has to be an advocate for humanity. It's a, it's a, it's a funny ju- just juxtaposition. Nah, it. it uh, this is the first I've watched this movie again in goodness a long time. And you're right; it, it's the older you get, watching it, you, you see through a different, a whole different lens of things. And, and yeah, it's. It's a shame they kind of took out his companions as early as they did in the movie. It would have been interesting to see how the three of them all interacted in captivity and be able to play play that a little bit more. But yeah, just just the 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 early scientific curiosity that uh, that uh, uh, Doctor. Uh, Oh, what was her name? Oh, Zero. Zero. Oh, Zero. Oh, Doctor yeah. Zero. Okay. Yeah, that she had over him it was very interesting. It was very much like a pet. <laughs> it, it it was a good juxtaposition with the uh, you know from humans and animals and transposing it all all together. Yeah, it, it's interesting every time I watch it again. I mean, if you ever saw um, uh, Coco the gorilla and her handler, it would have been like, it reminded me very much of that relationship, actually, which, did Coco the gorilla, that was, that was after Planet of the Apes was made, correct? Yes. So, yeah, it wouldn't, it wasn't even that, like, it was inspired by that, but it is interesting that the relationships were very similar. I mean, obviously... Coco wasn't, you know, the same intelligence as man and like doing that sort of stuff. But yeah. It's good you said Coco. I thought you were gonna say Harambe there for a minute. <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> slightly different. As someone who plays a lot of online games, I'm just gonna steer the whole conversation away from that meme. 
Uh, yeah, that would be a whole different, whole different show. Um, but was it different? I mean, think about the comparison to the movie. Like, really? I mean, they shot poor Harambe. I mean, I forget why. It was something with a kid and the kid fell into the cage or something. Yeah, a kid fell into the cage and they were afraid that he was going to, like, hurt him. Yeah. So look how, 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 how Taylor is just trying to get the pad and pen and, and he gets a beat down for his trouble. Yeah. And get shot at and all that kind of stuff. Too. I know I'm pulling straws here. <laughs> yeah, Dan. Just the way we, we look and try to and try to understand the motivations of what we consider a lower species when we have really no clue because we can't communicate effectively or at the same level as we think. Yeah. I think Miles hit on it though. It was, you know, basically Taylor was done with humans. He was done with earth. He was done with humans and he pretty much took the mission because he was looking for something better. Cause he even says it in the beginning of his little monologue, his little, uh, his captain's log, for lack of a better term. It's like <laughs> something out there has to be better. And you know, some, something out there has to be better than man. Um, he may have said it to one of the guys when they were walking around through the desert, but you know, he's, he's a pessimist. He's not, I don't know if he's a nihilist. He's maybe not a fatalist. He's just like, I'm done. <laughs> Look, there has to be a better gig somewhere out here. Right. Whereas the yeah. other astronauts were more knowledge. They were seeking knowledge. They were doing, like Chrissy says, you know, they were seeking something better and bigger than themselves. Yeah. The scientific, you know, the, the, the ability to amass more knowledge where Taylor was just a cynic. Yeah. yeah, and he even says something like when he's in doing his little like log of, you know, he's like, Do we still like do we still have arms against brothers? Do we still mm-hmm. like steal from our neighbor while their yep. child starves? Like so basically he's basically saying very much sets the tone of he is a cynic about human nature and you know, he's sort of like making fun of the other astronaut of like, right. You're just here to self aggrandize yourself and well now right. you've got what you wanted somewhere. There's a bronze statue, neener neener, you're mm-hmm. dead. Like <laughs> God, yep. I mean, it's like <laughs> And then come to find out that he was pretty bang on with his prediction. It's like, Yeah, we really were a bunch of idiots, weren't we? Yeah. And you know, he got what he wanted. He found a he found somebody superior to humans because it all went to hell while we were away. And I think it's I think it was interesting that they took away it would have been interesting to have at least one of the astronauts survive with him. But I think it's more powerful the fact that he he, the cynic, the like like Miles said, the one who could not give a damn about Earth has to be humanity's defender, <laughs> you know, in the face of the apes who see no value in humans whatsoever. Um, they've got whole, you know, demonic scrolls written about how evil humans are. Um, and so here's here's Taylor, the world's worst advocate for the human race, <laughs> to stand up and say, it's really not that bad. We weren't that bad. There, we actually had some good things and uh, with nothing to back it up other than his own work. Right. Yeah, well, it, it it allows for in that character to be some some immense growth from what, the way you encounter him at the beginning. Yeah, and so, and maybe is one of the reasons why his character and certainly Planet of the Apes has 
continued to resonate with people because of the fact that we we can change over time given the right circumstances and the right environment. But, and I think that might feel why he was so. Uh, he he really went after Zaius when they, toward the end of the movie when they're in the cave, the you know the the archaeological site. And they find the home and they find all the advanced stuff and the, the tools and the things that are much more sophisticated than anything the apes have. And, and he hammers the point home, you know, like, yeah, he was, man was here before you were, he was better than you. He did all these things, you know, and that must really piss you off. And of course, Zayas is freaking out because everything they know to be true is on the, is on the bubble now. You know, it's yeah, all. Yeah, he kind of still has the last laugh by basically. Being yes, he saying, does. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, you guys destroyed it all. You may yep. have, you may have been more advanced with us, but you destroyed yourself. No one else. You did that. Yeah, you can almost hear Zayas laughing at the end of the movie. <laughs> it's like, sucks to be you, bro. Hate for you to be wrong. But um, yeah, it's just it's, it's an interesting journey for Taylor because at the end, he's both right and wrong. You know about everything. Right. Right. It is fascinating that yeah. they send uh, they send up on the ship, you know, three guys and one woman to kind of repopulate the earth. Well, that's the sixties for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, the mission though was they were going to send them to, um, uh, pro- you know, Alpha Centauri or something. Yeah, I mean, they, they knew it was a one way trip, but. Um, I mean, that's the thing in the movie. They they think they're on a different planet. They don't think they're on Earth. And we'll forget. Which always, yeah. Which is always funny because nobody ever once, you know, hey, you speak English pretty good <laughs> for a day, right? You know, right. I I didn't think that. I was like, is no one else feeling like, hey, you you guys are speaking the same language? And also the fact that there wasn't. I mean, two thousand years. I don't know if any one of you have ever tried to go back and read like Chaucer. Mm-hmm. That was like written. Help me out, English teacher. Anyway, it's, it was written like six, six, seven hundred years ago, right? So you like, and we aren't even that far, and it's it's like a bear to read. Imagine, yeah. I mean, imagine two thousand years of language. There's no way they should be speaking the English you're speaking. No, they exactly. they shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's probably there's too much dialectal drift that actually happens. So. Yeah, that's probably like my biggest pet peeve with any sort of like time travel stuff is when people are like still speaking English and I'm just like, ah, oh, nails on chalkboard. To be to be fair though, if they would have altered it to sound like it might sound two thousand years ago, no one would see the movie. I mean, fair <laughs> point, but it's still like slightly you know, makes me twitch. I mean, we do that now with westerns. You know, yeah. it's like that's not we didn't use the same sorts of profanity that they did back in the day. Yeah, they, no. language oh. has evolved and oh, in fact they try profanity yeah. is so adorable i love it they, i love it right and uh, <laughs> but i mean they tried to do that when they were first producing deadwood the show on hbo in the original versions of the script the first couple of scripts they had period specific profanity or period appropriate profanity if you wish and it just sounded so silly the actors couldn't keep a straight face while they were saying these things and so that's why they went back in and they retooled everything to be more modern. Of course, you have Ian McShane, who can make profanity sound like Shakespeare. <laughs> if you've never I mean, seen the show, it's worth it just for Ian McShane. Um, well, I just, mean, you sold me. 
Yeah, if you've never watched the show, I recommend it highly. It's one of the it's one of the one of the better things that HBO has ever done. Um, but watching Ian McShane swear like every sailor in every navy that's ever sailed the earth in one scene and making it sound like the pinnacle of Shakespeare's career is absolutely worth the price of admission. <laughs> well, I mean, Shakespeare himself could be kind of crass at times. Yeah, but this is like whole a whole, whole new level. <laughs> is this like so? I mean. Was it like listening to Patrick Stewart swearing? Like, what's that? What's that? <laughs> was he like listening to Patrick Stewart swearing? Maybe I, I I don't know. I think even Patrick Stewart would blush at this. I mean I mean it's just so laced into every. It's like every other word. Every it's part of words. Oh. It's in the middle of other existing words. It's everything. you know I I learned how to swear from a sailor. So I I, yeah. I I should watch this. It's like wiping even your I'm ass like, with wow. Silk. Okay, that's that's much even for me. I have to up my game if I'm gonna compete on this level <laughs> so uh, yeah mouth would make your mama proud but, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so wow yeah yeah so i mean his performance was was great although I, I i gotta admit watching it i loved how terrible the apes were at throwing nets at people <laughs> yeah. you know they like i don't know you know, but Heston was bit. He was all in on this. This was not just like, okay, I'll do this job for the money and go on to the next thing. I mean, he was one of the biggest champions for this thing, trying to get landed at a, at a studio. Arthur Jacobs secured him, and then with Heston's support, that's how 20th Century Fox was convinced. Because they're like, well, if a guy like Heston is willing to do this, it must he's pretty good, even though I don't understand half of what this guy is talking to me about. You know, right. with all the drawings and all the concept stuff. I mean, yeah. So that he was he was a big part of getting the first movie greenlit. Wow. Well, when you have the guy who played Moses and was in exactly, uh, yeah. Um, all was the other big biblical Ben Hur. Ben Hur. Yeah. Ben Hurries and you know the Ten Commandments and uh, it's like yeah, this guy was. I mean, back in that time frame in the, in the late '60s, he was he was just, he was like a Kirk Douglas. I mean, he was he was a lister, top of the charts type of guy. Right. Um. Maybe on the maybe a little bit on the downhill slide, but still a name, you know that that, right. that producers stayed up would sit up and listen to. So right. he was a big part of getting it getting it landed. Right. Uh, other thoughts about maybe uh, so we talked a lot about Charles and Heston um, and a lot about his character and how it resonated. Uh, other characters, or maybe even if we want to get away from characters, other moments that kind of resonated here in this watch through. Well, I think we. We may just talk briefly about the apes themselves. I mean, uh, the the ape costumes for back then were, were uh, uh, ground setting. I mean, it, it was. Um, I, I think this laid the groundwork for a lot of advanced makeup and prosthetics we would see in later movies. And uh, so, my research for this, you know, the guy who was the the makeup. Uh, director, he basically tied up every, anybody in Hollywood who did makeup and prosthetics. I mean, it, de- it delayed other movies from being made because he basically employed them all to ha- uh, turn out all the ape makeup. Try all the yeah. makeup, and, and, and they have new prosthetics the next day that just didn't last yeah. and stuff. So, um, you know, they they weren't just wearing masks; they were wearing facial appliances where they could, you know. Um, talk and, and but but you also had some great actors playing these tapes that made you know made you um you know resonate with them 
I mean, John Chambers, the guy that created the ape makeup. I mean, he basically he basically pulled a James Cameron as far as special effects back in those days. I mean, he revolutionized how they approach prosthetics for these types of films and how to do it fast and how to do it affordably. Right. And even back then it was still, that was probably the lion's share of their budget was the apes makeup. Um, Cause like, like, like uh, miles was saying, once they paint it and apply it to an actor's face at the end of the day, it's done. You got to start over the next day with another set. So um, it was it was pretty it was pretty crazy. I mean, the guy got it. He actually got a special Oscar just because of the makeup. I mean, they didn't he didn't he wasn't nom- I think he was nominated, but they gave him a special achievement Oscar just for the work he did on this movie. There's actually a documentary film out there called make it's called uh, Making Apes. And it's all about how he created all that stuff. That's all awesome. yeah, I think, you know, that. Just, just by doing that, that kind of paved the way for, you know, we would see even, you know, better makeup and prosthetic effects in, in other sci-fi movies because, you know, nothing like that was done this this scale before. So they kind of discovered how to do some cool things by making these, these ape facial appliances. And if you really want to go uh, off into left field about John Chambers, according to legend in quotes, he actually worked for the CIA to create disguise kits for some of their covert agents working undercover, you know, hair and makeup and mustaches and beards and eye contact lenses and all kinds of crazy stuff that people could wear to alter their appearance while they were working undercover. And um, I don't know how much of that's true, how much of it's blended, but there was a movie that came out a few years ago called Argo, which was um, a situation where it took place during the tyrant, the, uh, the, the hostage situation in Tehran. Back in the, and apparently they en- they enlisted him to help create the fiction of a group of people scouting locations for a film in that area so that they could use that as cover for their movements to help get people out of the embassy. And they ended up rescuing like four or five people from the hostages from the embassy, getting them out of Tehran. It's based on a true story. I don't know how much liberty they took with the film, but it's fascinating that this is what they did, you know. Yeah, and by the way, uh, if you're interested in the Making Apes, the Artist Who Changed film is available free on Prime. There you go. Yeah, you know, it's it definitely for the time. You certainly, if you compare it to today, you're like, well, there's no contest. What you can do with CGI and other things, but mm-hmm. um, for the time, it really, it really holds up. Um, even these many years later, it doesn't look. It, it definitely, when you think about the 50s and 60s, you think a lot of. Uh, many times about a lot of cheese factor that comes into the the costumes and the things people do, but you don't really get that in Planet of the Apes. It holds up pretty well. And then yeah. Miles hinted at it earlier. It's like, you know, ha- that's half the equation. The other half was the actor. And, you know, I guess we can't talk about Planet of the Apes without talking about Roddy McDowell. Yeah. And, and everything he brought, not just to this film, but to the entire franchise. I mean, he... Um, and along with Kim Hunter and Maurice Evans and the other folks who played eight characters. But I mean, he in particular just went all in on it. Uh, and they figured out how to make the ape makeup move while they talk to give themselves expressions and reactions and all kinds of stuff. And then, you know, he goes on to play, he plays in four of the five original movies and one of the TV shows, <laughs> <He played laughs> different characters across all of that. 
Planet, uh, he got a lot of work from Planet of the Apes. He sure did. Yeah, 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 he did. He was basically the face of the franchise. I mean, I think he showed up on the Carol Burnett show or some award show in in a tuxedo, but with the Planet of the Apes head on. <laughs> you can find it on YouTube. They're, they actually did a skit. He and Carol Burnett did a, a very funny skit together. It's worth watching. Mm-hmm. Other, uh, other characters, other scenes that really... Uh that stood out. I mean, obviously, we have the iconic ending scene, right? Well, the, the hear no but. evil, see no evil, speak no evil. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. They, they were real subtle I, about that. The whole, the, yeah, that whole courtroom scene is is effective. <laughs> it really, really is. I watched it when I was, like, a child. And so I was watching it. I was actually watching it earlier today um, for this. And then I like paused it, and, like rewound. It. I was like, "Wait a minute, are they doing what I think they're doing?" <laughs> they absolutely, absolutely were. And then, like, because like you can see the comment, like some of the commentary, um, when you're watching it on uh, Amazon, and they're like, "Yep, they they thought the film was becoming like almost too serious, and so to add like a hint of levity, they kept it in." So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I thought that was brilliant on the part of the actors playing those three apes to do that. But it's but it's almost forgotten because you know they're 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 having that cross examination and they're arguing back and forth and they're arguing the points and you almost miss it because you're paying attention to what the actors are doing. But if you have to catch like on the second or third viewing, like wait a minute, did they do that? <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, it's it's a there's a lot of little subtle commentary baked into a lot. I mean, just like the 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 scene where he's trying to convince Zira and Cornelius that he's intelligent and he can understand what they're saying, but he can't talk because of his injury. You know, so he makes the paper airplane and he writes on the paper and answers their questions, and they're they're having a hard time believing this because it's like it'd be like you or me looking at our dog as he starts to describe you know how nuclear subs work or something. It's it's really crazy. So I mean, that's a great. Nuclear subs. He's describing technology that would would be like our dog coming in and being like, "So I figured out how to like travel across space and um like break through the time like um past the speed of light for deep space travel." We'd be like, "What? What Mm -hmm. are you on? What?" Yeah, and I was also the one who recorded the Puppy Bowl and overrode it the Super Bowl on the DVR. So you know, that's that we did that too. Right. So, I mean, it's just yeah, it'd be that we it's that level of incredulity. You know, incredulity. It's like holy crap, my dog is smarter than me. Apparently, you know, or has been places I've never been and done things I've never done or even thought of because right. I thought it was a myth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of crazy. That's that a great. Is- that's one of the pivotal scenes in the film. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think the best scene is the one with Taylor and Zayas the night before he's supposed to be executed or whatever. And Zayas basically just lays it out that he knows the story of Taylor and the humans that came before. And they're basically holding on with white knuckles to not have a repeat of that. You know, that's why we're trying to keep you guys down is because you've already destroyed the world once. We're not going to give you another chance. Right. It's like Zayas has this responsibility to maintain the status quo, and so he, you know, yeah. you know, you know, it, it, and so just the idea that uh, I mean, it's like when they use terms like scientific heresy, and you don't even blink. They're like, wait a minute, that's a complete contradiction in terms. What are you talking about? They're <laughs> mixing science and and faith, and in and, and, and it's 
they're not even pausing to think about that. That's their way of life. And there's there's so much of that little commentary, subtle commentary, well, just kind of baked in there. Actually, I mean that that really was for a very long time in our history the norm. I mean, yeah. for a very long time, um, science was considered the handmaiden of theology. Mm-hmm. Yep. So at least here here in the West, I shouldn't say you know. Well, they, you know. Okay. So, in a way, yeah, there was those, the idea of, I don't want to say like mm-hmm. scientific her- heresy, but that that was it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Galileo got locked mm-hmm. up. Now, part of that was because he told the, basically published something that said the Pope was an idiot. Because up until that point, they were actually quite supportive of the Copernican system of the um, universe. But, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, Galileo pissed off the Pope. So <laughs> he called him an idiot. So it's like basically Taylor is Galileo in this scenario here. And yeah, I mean, just... he probably should not have pissed off them a little bit better. And then mm-hmm. we may have not had a bunch of um, delays in our scientific advancement because of two men's egos. Right. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that baked into the film. It's it's uh, it, it definitely is worth repeat viewings. Right. Well, and this, this oh, well, they, they must because, you know, allow us this exploration. It's science. And mm-hmm. her being, like, shocked that there would be any sort of, like, politics in science or religion. But there you have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that wasn't There's, prescient at all. There was something in the courtroom scene that, that I, I didn't get. This is the first time I may have gotten this in a while, but where... Even in the apes society, there you know there is a hierarchy and caste system, and you know when Zeus is talking about the uh, God creating all apes equal or whatever, and Taylor saying yeah, but it seems like um, other apes are more equal than others. I thought that was interesting. Well, oh, yeah, because yeah, there there was that little throwaway comment um, by the one scientist about how like there was, was it, something about like. This is something like how you know they like look down on chimpanzees, and it sounds chimpanzees like chimpanzees are of, pacifists. Yeah, they're pacifists. Well, it sounds like there was like some sort of like quota system or something that they abolished recently. Oh yeah, they mentioned that. Yeah, there was there was a line about that, wasn't there? Um, and so I got the distinct impression, I'm like, okay, so chimpanzees are looked down on for some reason, and they're not offered the same advancements as other apes. Yeah, I think that was sort of like the again. It goes back to the racism allegory, you know, about different different segments of society, and they were which. And of course, you know, Planet of the Apes got it backwards. You know, chimpanzees are actually the more aggressive um, of the species versus gorillas. But you know, let's Planet of the Apes is nothing if not a lacking in subtlety. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's Listen, like the worst they, they really want to make sure you get the message. You know? They want to make sure you get them. It's like, like that Star Trek episode where they're half white and half black, but they're opposite sides of the face, and one side's bad and one side's. I hate you. Well, I hate you more. You know, and wow, Star Trek never got into politics back in the '60s. Like, what were you watching? Right, right. Well, even Zira has a line saying that the gorillas are idiots or something. So, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, there's racism with with the different ape uh, species. Yeah. Well, you know, it's. Uh, I'm thinking as we're talking here. I'm thinking like there's a sense of obviously not so subtle allegory in here. Like this is really you know 
talking about commentary of the human condition. I'm reading through Animal Farm with my students right now. Um, you know, and you have that same sort of idea of that. So we can tell this story through apes because it's maybe not as direct and we can be pretty blatant about it and hopefully people will get it. But. I think that's a lot of 60s science yeah. fiction. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of that get past the censors because it's so far out. They won't believe that it could possibly mean anything about us here. Right, right. You know, that, was Rod- that was Roddenberry's whole M.O. for a lot right, of times. Right, right. Uh-huh. You know, it's yeah. like, they won't, you know, they're too busy looking at the pointed ears and the green things. They won't, they won't question the fact that I just called them all racist ass bags. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I forgot, I don't remember what the rating is for this show. That's <laughs> fine, it's fine. It has, it has yeah, we, we, we have Chrissy on and it's gone downhill since. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't told the reading, so I just like let my mouth fly. And as I said earlier, I was I was taught to swear oh, yeah, by I'm, an actual sailor. So I've been having I've been having to rein it in for like an hour. So you all, it's, you got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, honey, do not rein it in. <laughs> yeah, no, I just like yeah, I've been behaving myself for an hour. Just slipped right out. So, <laughs> uh, no, uh, fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, yeah, I've been, I've been, that might be why I'm not. Were you all not? Yeah, that might be why I don't get invited to too many podcasts because I screw the rating system up for their particular show. It's like, well, this was a fa- this was a family show until five seconds ago. Yeah, you know, then like, someone decided to invite Jayton along, yeah. and there and I went to hell. I have actually, I've actually torched entire programs. That's right. Me, so that's right. You uh, know, he could, Scott could just leave it out. It's fine. Yeah, mm-hmm. or I can leave it in. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like the last show where I added the Wiener Wiener song in. <laughs> that that made me so happy that you did that. It really did. Yeah. It was beautiful. So, I know we were going to talk about. Did we talk about the ending? We haven't talked about the ending. No, Not we yet. should talk about the ending. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's obviously a Twilight Zone episode blown up, right? Right. Uh, I mean, um, in fact, somebody out there years ago, like at the at the dawn of the internet. <laughs> Somebody put together a half-hour version of Planet of the Apes, and they framed it like a Twilight Zone episode. So they had a they had a Rod Serling intro, and they found an opening monologue that was from one of the episodes that was close enough and vague enough that it could fit. And then they 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 basically cut Planet of the Apes down to thirty minutes and made it a Twilight Zone episode. Um, I don't even know if it's I don't even know if it's available anywhere on the internet. I might have a copy somewhere on a on a drive somewhere. But it's really cool. It really works as a Twilight Zone episode, just in that format. But um, as far as this, yeah, he—I don't think that was the original because the the book is different. If you've read the book, then you know it's a completely different kind of story, except for this, the major beats, right? This is kind of where the Wahlberg the movie Wahlberg kind of took the ending of it, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But so the whole see the Statue of Liberty and you're on Earth the whole time. I mean, that is right out of a Twilight Zone episode. Wow. Yeah, and of course, I don't think they thought they were going to make another one. I mean, I figured they, they, you know, they people didn't automatically think sequels back in those days. It wasn't like your gut reaction on opening weekend, um, like we do now, or even while the shit thing is in production. It's like, well, you know, we're we're six months out from release date, but you think we can get four or five more of these out while these guys are under contract? They don't. They didn't think like that back in those days. Um, but of course, it made enough money. Miles said it made something like seven or eight times its budget back whatever whatever it was so yeah they thought yeah we've spent all that money on sets and costumes and makeup let's make another one 
How much, uh, so this is obviously not dealing with this, but how much of the costumes and sets made it into the subsequent movies? Oh, I think they wrote them hard. <laughs> Put them <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I the, the, the second movie for sure um, used a lot of it because, of, I mean, in some ways, the story is almost a retread of the first movie. Um, they definitely used Ape City. That was still used cool. Ape City, yeah. And um, in fact, some of that stuff even made it as far as the TV show. So that was six or seven years later. They were still using components of that on on the on the TV show, um, and and the costumes and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think the only one that was really a departure was the was Conquest, the one that was set, you know, like in our near future back then. It was it was made in the seventies, but it was set in the far off year of nineteen ninety one, and so they had to put everybody in jumpsuits for because apes were being groomed to be slave labor, you know, in, in the early, because they were becoming more intelligent uh, in that time frame. But yeah. I think, I think they, they, they got their money's worth out of that franchise. Yeah. And by the way, I, I heard the third, go ahead. The, uh, I'm sorry. The, the, um, the one where, where, where Zier and Cornelius go to the past mm-hmm. uh, there, there's only three ape costumes. So that 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 yeah. as far as the budget goes, that that saved them a lot of money because. No, I was going to say that that they basically it was a, it was diminishing returns. So like every movie got a green light, but it got a smaller budget, and then it got less at the box office. So it was just a perpetual cycle. Right. And I they it took them to get to the like the, the last one where they drove they dragged they dragged out a lot more the costumes and the makeup and all that kind of stuff for one last go, and. Um, I think at that point they were probably sure that that was done, and then CBS wanted a TV show. Right. Right. Um, By the way, I found that episode that you were talking about that the recut as the Twilight Zone episode. You did find it. Yeah, I, I dropped the link into your Facebook chat. Then, okay. So, um, I, I knew it had to be out there somewhere because yeah, it's forever. But yeah. So I threw it in so that everyone can watch it. It's on the, uh, actually the forbidden zone.net has it. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's actually a, it's like an, almost like an extra episode of the twilight zone. It's, I, it's that good as I remember. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that we, uh, we ought to say about this film before we, uh, look at uh, wrapping up the show here? Anything about the music? Was the music there? I don't know. Oh, like, man. Yeah. No, go ahead. go ahead. Let's talk about the music. I love, well, I mean, it's Jerry Goldsmith. Right. And he was a master of giving all the films that he scored music for their own unique identity. Right. Um, you know, more right. recent audiences know him from Star Trek and um, some of other more action flicks. But he, back in the 60s and the early 70s, he was laying it down. And Planet of the Apes is one of the best movie scores I've ever heard. It is. It's just got that. It's got that primitive percussion, percussive, aggressive, in your face kind of music that you need it. But it can also be very subtle. I mean, he was he was he was on his game for that movie. It definitely had Goldsmith vibes, no doubt. Oh, definitely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I have a question, and um, and it just came to me as we were talking. So this movie came out the same year as two thousand one, right? Am I correct about it that? Did. Yeah. yeah, it did. So, like, did anyone say, hey, we have, like, two, I mean, 2001 starts out with some pretty, uh, you know, potent ape themes here. 
obviously very different movies, but was anyone drawing any comparisons to the two? I mean, I don't remember how closely they were released. Right. Um, I don't remember. Uh, I want to say 2001 came out first. Yeah, I think but, it did. I think um, it did. I don't, don't quote me on that. Yeah. Um, but it was also of the two, it was the one you, that you didn't have to smoke a bong understand okay <laughs> so, yeah, and i said i've yeah. never seen or the 2001 space oh, odyssey because you know i i don't think that i can get past like the first scene with the apes and the screaming and that like yeah i feel like you'd have to smoke something to, like, <laughs> but you know what do you know what though you, know, you, you i just looked though and, and, and you know what they were released within a week of each other oh were they in the united wow. states so you smoked a bong. <laughs> Actually, I think this says they were released on the same day, at least limited. I mean, thir- 3 of April, 68. I'm like, what? Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, you smoked a bong, you watched one, you smoked another bong, you watched two, and then you felt like it was like, you got a sequel. I mean, it's it's possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I am a fan of 2001, but not when I was 12. No. You know, it's it no. was one of those movies I had to watch again as i got older to appreciate what it was trying to do and i still couldn't tell you what the hell's going on at the end of the movie sometimes um we, yeah, I mean, yeah. and he did that deliberately to screw with us all right, right. So we'll be talking about it for 50 years that's right um, but and the apes one you know the ending is pretty pretty powerful and you're like what happened you know you want to know what happened you want to know how we got there i mean he kind of gives you the cliff notes version but you do kind of want to know what happened right Right, right. I say that, but 2001, we, we kind of you, you dog on here a little bit, but, uh, you know, I think about like all the movies that have spoofed it over oh, yeah. the years. You know, I think even like Zoolander and, uh, in the little scene they have with the, with the Mac. I mean, it, it, you, you, it's funny in its own right, but it, but it is a different level of funny when you know what that's a reference to. And mm-hmm. for, for many of the people, the audience, that's going to be lost if they haven't watched the movie. There was a, I don't know, I might be dating myself here, but there was a movie that came out in the early eighties called history of the world. Part one. It was a Mel Brooks movie. Right. Right. Oh my God. I love that one. And yeah, in the beginning, there's a spoof of, of what looks like a 2001 riff with the eight people. And, yeah. You know, it's so, it, it, yeah. I love anything Mel Brooks makes. Well, oh, yeah. yeah. Spaceballs uh, borrows a little from it too. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. His, yeah. It's yeah. Got the <laughs> Yeah. I think Planet of the Apes by itself is iconic enough that you can spoof on it in just about any movie. I mean, um, you could. Yeah. In 2001, again, I when I watched it as a kid, I was I had no idea what I was watching. Right. Um, but as an yeah. adult, it's one of my favorite films. I don't think yeah. I've tried watching it since I was a teenager because I just remember being extraordinarily bored. Well, it is. It's, it, there's no doubt when you look at it through modern eyes, it's a very slow movie. Um, oh, it's absolutely a slow movie. But uh, you know, I I like a good slow burn. Honest, you know, if it's a good story, if it's if it's a slow burn, but it's drawing me in, I'm okay with that. Right. My wife can't stand it. She can't stand movies like that. It's like get on with it. Yeah, you know, but I can totally watch it, and I've I, I've lost count of how many times I've gone to see that one at the movie theater. Yeah, um, every time there's a special screening or a special event, I will I will automatically buy tickets for that. Yeah, IMAX, the whole smash, I don't care. Yeah, well, it's, it's you know it definitely is good. I first saw it on a laser disc was my first experience. With it. <laughs> I think I watched it in we watched it in a 
some kind of class at school. We watched it like 30, you know, whatever, 30 minutes a day for however long it took to get through the movie. Yeah. So I forget which class we were watching it. Yeah, something like that. I might still be going on for all I know. But um, just kind of like that scene in Star Trek, the motion picture where they're flying around the Enterprise. It's like, we've been in the pandemic almost as long as the scene has been Another one I had to grow up a little bit before I could appreciate. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Well, very good. Very good. Um, well, thank you, Dayton, so much for coming on and uh, and sharing your thoughts and your uh, your love of Planet of the Apes with us. And uh, and uh, certainly appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. On. I hope we accomplish something. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's hard to tell sometimes. Yeah, we we certainly we certainly oh, yeah. we, we certainly we certainly got a rating change. That's for sure. <laughs> I know we. Yeah, there we go. I, was, I know we killed an hour, but I don't know if we actually got anything. Uh, yeah, you know it's it's always fun that uh, just dialoguing, seeing where these conversations go, and uh, just a different, just a, the different elements we we pull out. You know, you can have a conversation with someone else about Planet of the Apes and come up with something totally different. So, yeah. yeah so, well, you have to start reaching when you start talking about the sequels because you know they vary in quality. Right, right, right. So is that why you said with you and you went well? So if we if we if we do watch a Wahlberg one, we gonna have you back on to kind of spoof on it then. I, I you know what, I, I'm a, I'm I'm not afraid to step in front of the bullet. I, I, I've I've defended Star Trek Five, so I could probably defend two thousand. I don't know if I could defend it, but I can at least get through a conversation about it. And, uh, <laughs> you know. All right, all right, right. I mean, it's a gorgeous movie to look at. I can right. give it, I can give it props for what it, you know for the costumes and the ape makeups and the production design. I can give it some. Hey, sometimes phrase. you just want to look at a pretty movie and yeah, it's like turn the sound off and it's fine. Exactly. Right, 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 right. And shut it off before the end, and you're good. Yeah. <laughs> like with some people. And get a <laughs> maybe we can watch in a hookah lounge and be good. Good to go. <laughs> So we all pledge to smoke a bowl before we watch. Uh, right, 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 right. That's right. how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll go to, we'll go to, it'll be a whole new sci-fi diner show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, Dayton, it's a madhouse. It's a madhouse. <laughs> my wife would not appreciate it. She just took a job where they, they like, drug screener and she has to be um like completely no no none of that right right um, and so i'm like well that just means more for me right right <laughs> right right, right. <laughs> so i'm not being tested i don't care right right She's doesn't like, matter to me yeah. <laughs> that is hilarious well dayton thank you so much for joining us where can people find out more about your life and what's going on in your world I am and always pro will be until they, I let the registration lapse at DaytonWard.com. Um, that is where I might, you will find a blog of sorts and links to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and links to where you can get my books and find writing awesome. that I do online and all that good stuff. Good. Do you still have Fog of War? I do. It's still there. It's yeah. baked into that website. Um, <laughs> Yeah, where I will wax philosophic or nostalgic about various things. Yeah, well, very good. Well, thank you for joining us, and uh, thank you all for your great discussion tonight. And Miles, why don't you take us out of the show? All right. Till next time. Good night and good luck. We'll see ya. And go boldly. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, you know, so for 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 people listening to this podcast, it's something new and unusual, and uh, so you know, you have some variety to it. So, okay, yeah, yeah we'll call it that. Yeah, we'll call it. Yeah, hey, we'll give it the benefit of the doubt. They're so free. the conversations are more. I enjoy the conversations that are more free form. Right. I would rather talk about anything. Like when I do a lot of po- a lot of the podcasts I do are interviews about me and what I'm working on. Right. And I hate those. <laughs> I do not like talking about myself, and I do not like talking about my. I would rather t- do this where we talk about a movie we all like or a movie we all hate. You know. Right. I don't. I'd rather do that or talk about something else that's not me. Uh, I'm just more comfortable that way. Whenever they start, because then I get the same questions every time. You know, like whenever a book comes out, and I have to go the gamut of interviews. You know, where'd you get your ideas? Where do you do this? What was the, you know, I'm like, I get a box of ideas in the mail every month. I'm a Prime member. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's like I have a subscription to Prime. I have a subscription. It comes every month, whether I want it or not. That's right. You know, that kind of thing. There's a guy under a bridge who sells me a box on the down low. That's right. That's right. I, I have a dealer on Fifth Avenue. Exactly. I got the Star Wars Christmas holiday special. It felt like a back alley deal. Yeah, it certainly did. It certainly did. Oh, there was a Star Wars I could get behind a reboot for. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? I guess. We had a discussion a little while, a few weeks ago, or a few months ago now, about rebooting the original three Star Wars movies. That was heresy. That was that was an interesting conversation. That's the kind of stuff that'll get you burnt in a town square. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we said. I mean, man. And I have a I have a friend who is an actual die hard will fight and die on that hill defender of the holiday special. And I give him grief for that. I think he does it just to be contrarian. I mean, he's just like, everybody hates it, so I'm going to be the champion. And, you know, we, we – and, and I will – I'm okay with it too because we – you know, Star Trek's got its dogs too. So right. I'm okay with that. But I'm like, I literally have a copy of the holiday special on a Blu-ray disc in as close to HD as you can get. And he was blown away that that by I found it on some bootleg site. I'm like, okay, that's going on the shelf just so people can look at it in horror. <laughs> but it's 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 really the kind of thing that you put on TV at a dinner party when you're ready for everybody to leave and not even bother to say goodbye. Just you put know, it on, let it just, run. Get out, get out. I have actually never watched this. Who wants to stay? You know, you know. This you can, infamous you, movie. Yeah. If you can survive like- this. It's like a friendship destroying movie. I feel like you don't, <laughs> you don't show your friends that. Like you just don't. Well, I, I guess for those of us of a certain age, we can at least point and look at. Well, okay, Harvey Corman used to be funny. Harvey Corman was funny. B. Arthur was funny. These were people who were funny and on TV when I was a kid. I but. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I've never seen it. I've only ever heard of it in Whisper. Oh my god! Well, you know what? It's you, you got to do it at least. It's kind of like seeing The Room. Have you seen that movie, The Room, the yeah. low budget movie that's that sometimes screens at Alamo and other art house movie theaters? It's a really horrifically bad horror movie. I think it was made for like a buck ninety eight. I have not. This guy has made a career. The guy who made it has made a career out of going from house to house, movie theater to movie theater, and, and basically taking it on the road and talking about this movie. I think he's made more money from the speaking engagements before the movie screens than he made from the movie itself. Oh, wow. it's, it's horrifically bad. Right. 
I mean, I've I've seen Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> That's funny and amusing. That's funny and it's amusing and, and and it's a rite of passage. You have to go do that. You know, we've all done that. But I mean, this is horrific. And um, but everybody should do it once just so they can punch their card. And um, the holiday special ranks right up there. I mean, I feel I feel like I need to watch this horror. I mean, I've even watched those. Those what was it like? Those Ewok Endor movies with like oh, the kids are, or something. Those are Martin Scorsese movies compared to the Holiday Special. Um, <laughs> I think I want to say that Disney, you know, Disney Plus has everything Star Wars, right? They don't they even have, don't have that. They, they don't have, have it. No, but they they have the Boba Fett cartoon in the middle. That's the only redeeming thing that most people like about the holiday special is it oh, was a yeah. cartoon yeah, that introduced absolutely. Boba Fett before Empire came out. And that's on there. But they won't acknowledge the existence of the rest of it. Yeah. And I'm just like, cowards, put it up there. You yeah, know? put it out there, absolutely. They have, they, have, they, have, they have Ewoks for Endor on there. Come on, just put it. Exactly. Exactly. Like, I mean, like, get it up there. Come on, do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Here's a question. These these sequels that we have allegedly gotten, is it worse than that? Because those were pretty bad. No, I hands doubt it was worse. <laughs> I enjoyed the holiday special is worse than the. I mean, the more re- the Disney sequels to Star Wars. Yes, those are the oh, last I, few. I, were. I've heard ru- I've heard rumors that there are movies that Disney made of Star Wars, but I haven't seen any. I refuse to acknowledge that they exist. Thank That's you. Thank you. <laughs> He, I, I will like actually put, yeah, I will I will put the last Jedi on just because I know it will make somebody on the internet freak out. <laughs> I like it. I'm like I'm not even watching it, but I know that somebody somewhere is seething right now because it's spinned up and it's spun up in my blue. Is, is, is that what you do? Like in the background, you're on a video interview and you just have it muted in the background, <laughs> playing as you're being interviewed, that, just that to see the reaction. Just yeah. to get people pissed, yeah. That's like, right. yeah. I've got the Last Jedi on. What are you gonna do about it? Yeah, yeah. You know? you, 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 you want to interview with me? You want me to I didn't talk about myself? Interview anyway, so yeah. yeah. Cancel it, you know? I don't want to talk about myself anyways. Yeah, put it on. <laughs> no. Just um, I actually did enjoy Rogue One, and um, even to an extent, I liked Solo. I mean, it's flawed, but I at least had a fun time. I, I, yeah. I did like Versus Rogue the... One a lot, mm-hmm. and and I did enjoy. And I haven't seen it yet. The first one that they did, but it was more because it was like very in the same vein of what we already got. It was a little bit on the safe side, didn't do a whole lot of like groundbreaking stuff. I was like, okay. And then I was ready for the second two, and they just, I don't know. I, um, my kids had watched the, the original trilogy and the prequels. And so I have a soft spot. Or Force Awakens because it was the first new Star Wars movie and I got to take them to see a Star Wars movie on the big screen the way you're supposed to see a Star Wars movie. Right? Absolutely. And the way so, God intended. Right, the way God intended. And my <laughs> oldest kid at the time was the same age I was when the original Star Wars came out that summer. So it was kind of like a father-daughter moment. you know. It's like, okay, we're geeking out over the same thing 40 years apart, you know? And so I give it a little bit of forgiveness, but man, that last one was a dog, Rise of Skywalker. Um, <laughs> that could be his whole podcast. Dogs. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I hear good things about Andor. <laughs> I hear good things about Andor. I haven't seen it yet, but I hear good oh, things about it. Is, it, is, it is pretty fantastic. 
Well, it, it is a slow a, a slow start. So you said that you like slow start, slow burn. I do. I, I do like a slow burn. It it really depends on my mood. It seems like if I'm in the mood for a slow burn, um, at the time I was reading a very slow burn book, so I had no mm-hmm. tolerance left for it. <laughs> I'm a fan of like old noir mystery and stuff like that, so I'm okay with the slow opening, the slow burn, the, the you know the dots, you know the pieces being moved around on the board until you get the picture. Yeah, sometimes sometimes like a slow burn will grab me and I won't mind it, and other times it just I yeah. don't know. Yeah, if I'm if I'm pulled in by the characters and stuff, then I don't think of it as a slow burn. Yeah, I, if, otherwise I'm just like, oh, good God, get on with it. Like I'm. Well, I mean, yeah. So, if, have you seen the movie L.A. Confidential? Mm, I don't think I have. Okay, so it's basically a 1950s crime noir thriller, and it's based on a book. And the book takes for freaking ever to get to the point, but the characters are so awesome, and the guy's writing is so compelling that you don't care <laughs> you know well, it takes a what, while what is the name of this book you should write it in called, the chat thing it's called la confidential and it was a movie it came out 25 years ago 20 25 years ago yeah. but it was based on a novel that came out first and um the guy's writing style is very much an acquired taste because he's basically one of these guys who did a lot of drugs and decided that I don't need adverbs and I don't need any other things other than the bare minimum to get my point across and yet it works for him he has his own style that he's kind of created. Um, but the, the book is so much more dense than the film, but the film is very dense. So if you like a good mystery, start with the film and then back up to the book. You won't, okay. you won't, it, it doesn't matter. They both work for their, you know, their respective mediums just fine. So right. I'm a big fan of that one. I think well, it should have won best picture that year, but they gave it to Titanic. So, you know, screw those guys. <laughs> Well, yeah. <clears throat> now I have that song in my head by Celine Dion. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mission accomplished. All right. There you go. Yeah, I'm done. I got my quote in. There you go. There you go. We're good.